Welcome to the Good Cities Podcast with news and information about city movements around the world. Brought to you by GoodCities.net. In this episode, Reggie McNeil interviews Glenn Barth, president of Good Cities. Glenn describes three missional epochs of the church through history as the point of encounter between the church and the world has changed. In our time, serving others together in cities where we live and work advocates the kingdom incarnationally. Hi, I'm Reggie McNeil, a member of the team at Good Cities, and today I have the privilege of interviewing our president, Dr. Glenn Barth. Glenn, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's great to be with you as always, Reggie. Glenn, in your work at Good Cities, you've given a good deal of thought as to how the church intersects and engages the culture, that interplay between our faith and our setting. Share some of your thoughts with our listeners. Reggie, you know, this is critical. If we as Christians uh, believe that we've been changed as people by the good news of Jesus Christ, that, uh, that we become people who think carefully about how we impact those around us and uh, become change agents in our world. And in every generation, there has to be a, a deep sense of personal ownership of how the good news of Jesus Christ has changed our own identity in Christ. And then how do we live that out in such a way that, in fact, we're living in that intersection between the church and the world? That's typically been known as the mission of the church, that intersection, that place where the church interacts with the world around it. In the early church that's represented in the Bible, as, uh, as we look at uh, Paul in the books of Acts, uh, Peter, as we look at all the folks who traveled with Paul in his missionary journeys, what we see is that the church was, first of all, a gathering of those who came to believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And Paul, throughout the New Testament letters, is working to develop the identity of these people in every city and community where Paul traveled to. He would help them uh, first by going to people he knew. And, uh, and so Paul's first bridge to the world was to go to folks in the synagogue because he was a, a well-recognized leader in the synagogue. And, right. and he could go there and speak authoritatively about what it meant to believe and to follow Jesus Christ and how that changed our identity from people who were living by the law, people who were, uh, who, who, uh, were failing forward in a lot of ways. Uh, and Paul then helped them see that in Jesus Christ, we have a brand new identity and it's, it's a life that contrasts with the world around us. And uh, it, the, the interesting thing about Paul when he did this was when he would speak to people uh, in, that, in the congregational context of a synagogue or, or even of a new church, he was always speaking to a group of people who once they closed the door, the world was on the outside and they were on the inside having this new words spoken into their life. You see things like uh, Paul uh, talking to them and saying that you're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. This reconciliation that God brought to you, well, you're ambassadors of reconciliation wherever you go. You bring this message of reconciliation between God and humans. 
uh, he would uh, constantly be working to find new ways to express the new reality of their identity in Christ. Like Jesus said in John 17, uh, in his prayer, in the world, but not of the world. Yes, yes, that's true. But the world didn't penetrate the boundary of that teaching place where Paul was speaking to them about their new identity. And when they stepped outside that congregation and left the comfort of learning about their new identity, they felt as though they were trying to express this change that's happened in their life to people around them who they found to be hostile, persecuting, and, uh, and frankly, antagonistic toward their faith in Christ. And uh, this is something I think uh, I've told you, Lauren Mead has done a great job describing. This was what was known as the apostolic era, and the point of mission happened right at the doorstep of the church as people walked out of this place that had formed a new identity, a new spiritual identity, into a world around them that was hostile, antagonistic, and persecuting. And this notion of uh, being a witness was actually described by a term that we today recognize as martyr. Martyreo was the Greek term for this, being a witness in this world. And, uh, and, and so there was a real tension point there between their new identity and trying to witness into this world. Uh, well, the church experienced this kind of apostolic reality for, a, a, for the first three centuries of their existence until Constantine, the emperor, became a Christian and made Christianity a, a legalized religion. And it began to change the whole nature of these cell groups of churches that met in cities as outpost for the kingdom, as missional outpost, now to a place where mission changes from being a local reality where you step outside the doorstep of your church and you're in the mission field to a place where it's safe to be a Christian. And, uh, and they began to develop this notion of geographic parishes throughout the kingdom. And this era became known, as Lauren Mead points out, as the era of Christendom. Christendom uh, ushered in a time where Christians began to think about mission differently, and the frontier of mission became a far-off enterprise, and uh, was often, Christianity was often then identified with the nation-state of, uh, of the Roman Empire. So wherever the troops went to conquer, the priests were there to baptize. And, uh, and as this uh, new reality took shape, um, the role of the church changed. Uh, and it became uh, almost a, a piece of the acculturation process of being a citizen of Rome to be a member of a local parish or a church over time. And uh, that era of Christendom, Reggie, I think you and I have come to see that era continued throughout the time of the church from that around, what, the end of the third century or, or beginning of the fourth century. AD all the way up right. until about the 1960s. And, yeah. and especially here in the United States, where uh, a lot of folks believed that, uh, that to be a Christian and to be an American were almost identical. And, uh, and, and that mixing of, of national identity with uh, Christian identity is something that the nation began to separate itself from the church. 
in its identity. Well, and in the whole term, a Christian nation, which would have been an unthinkable term in the apostolic era, became a way of expressing the culmination of the Christendom paradigm. That's right. That's right. And so in the 1960s, people began to question this. And I think the first real tremor of the separation between uh, the notion that, uh, uh, you know, that, that we were a Christian nation and uh, the, the Christian identity and the national identity were different, probably came with Madeleine Murray O'Hare's lawsuit uh, that came to uh, say that uh, prayer in school should no longer take place because we need to separate church and state. And while the notion of separation of church and state was there before, the, the church and, and the state were, were closely enough identified up until the early 1960s that, that not only was prayer allowed in school, but it was often Christian prayer that was allowed. And so, right. so the nation began to, to, to define itself as different than the Christian faith in that time period. And, uh, and Lauren Mead uh, went on to say, in the early 1980s, hey, ever since this separation of identity has occurred, um, the church hasn't really recovered from Christendom. And uh, right. so the identity of many Christians continues to be that we're Americans right. even when they go in. So in America, we've developed a very uh, unusual style of church. Our church growth has been patterned on something we might call the homogeneous unit principle, or people like one another generationally or racially gather together in churches in order to grow the church quickly. People like one another came together. What this caused was division between churches as churches began to finally define, F-I-N-E-L-Y, define their faith as different than someone else's faith. And began to practice in different ways. And we developed a, a number of different bounded set identities within the congregations. And it was very hard for Christian unity to continue to develop in a, in a healthy ecumenical sense in our cities. Well, now you, um, you talk about bounded set just, just then. Yes. Could you, could you, uh, kind of uh, expand on what that means versus some other kind of set and the implication for work in cities? Sure. You know, when we, we know, we have a sense uh, from reading the Bible, Jesus in John 17 prayed for our unity and said this would be a central factor in our witness in communities. And, uh, and, and some have chosen to define that in a small way. They've said, okay, that means we need to get along within our own congregation, and uh, that's our Christian unity and witness. It's clear when you read the New Testament that what Paul was talking about in terms of Christian unity was, was the witness of Jews and Gentiles, men and women, slave and free, people of different ethnicities coming together in a new unity in Christ, Paul even went as far as to call it a new race of people who have Christ as their king. And, mm -hmm. and so when we think about that, um, you know, what Paul was doing was saying, when people who are very different from one another begin to come together and find their primary identity in Jesus Christ, 
that's a witness to the heavenly rulers and authorities that they've never seen before, and it's a revealing of the mystery of God. Well, we've reduced that in America to unity within congregations oftentimes. And, uh, and so uh, a bounded set occurs when things like one another gather together, like all the oranges or all the apples. It's represented by a solid line that might form a circle. And, uh, and then those things inside that set are seen as like one another. In our churches, nope. we, we've done this. We, we have membership classes that define what we believe is different than the church next door or down the street. Um, and this, this would partially explain the denominational centering uh, that would be an affinity for a bounded set with that, um, not just an individual congregation, but a tribe of congregations. Would that be accurate? Yes, that's partially true. Although when I talk to uh, Baptists or Presbyterians or Methodists, and I talk to them about the, the need for us to come together in interdenominational unity to, as an expression of what Christ really desired for the church, they'll always say to me, well, if we could get our own group together and have unity there, that would be a big first step right. for us. You know, so right. even differences within those groups. Right. And, uh, so those lines, those lines could be formed by ethnicity, or they could be formed by doctrine, uh, or they could be formed by any other any number of factors that you use as an exclus exclusionary um, threshold. Is that what you're saying? Sure. And and we're always asking the question when someone wants to join our congregation is. Do you believe like we believe, or do you worship like we worship? Um, so a liturgical group will attract folks who love liturgical worship, you know. And uh, so, the, yeah, go ahead. So, so, so the real thing is who's in, who's out, uh, with a careful attention to who's out <laughs> yeah, in, in the bounded set, you know. There's this exclusionary uh, yeah. piece to it where. Some are included and some are excluded, and uh, anyone who's not a part of our group becomes a part of our mission field at that point, yes. too, don't, don't they? I mean, and, and some would be harder to convert than others. <laughs> now, yes, I mean, even people and uh, close cousins are harder um, within the tribal uh, warfare. But so what's the alternative to the bounded set? That's a really great question. Interestingly, most of our world doesn't operate with the bounded set thinking. Most of our world is operating with what we would call centered set thinking. And in a centered set, you have a, it's represented not by a solid line in a circle, but it's represented by a point. And that, that point is what we care about. And, you know, it could be a place where you work. You identify with that company's mission statement and you like getting the, the paycheck you're getting there. And uh, hopefully you're beginning to use some of your natural and God-given gifts to do your work because you care about the products or services you're offering to your customers uh, in the end. And uh, that's the ideal kind of work situation, isn't it? Or it could be a volunteer situation. A centered set could be that you care about teenagers who are suffering from alcohol and chemical abuse. So 
you fund things that support that. And maybe if, you, if you're in leadership, you help those kids get the help and assistance they need. The interesting thing about a centered set is that there are lots of people who care about lots of different things in our world out there. And uh, arrows can change direction. So let's say I've got little kids in my family and um, I don't really care too much about teenagers with alcohol and chemical problems. So I'm not even thinking about it. I'm not a part of their centered set. But I become a part of their centered set when my kid becomes a teenager and is hooked on, uh, on some kind of a drug or alcohol issue. And then I care a great deal about it. And I'm paying money for counselors. I'm getting my kid into treatment. Um, uh, then I'm looking to support the whole system that helps these kids come out of chemical or alcohol dependency and back into a sober life. So, so in your work with cities uh, and, and groups um, addressing different issues, are you always on the look for the centered set, um, the, the center points that people can be drawn to in that, uh, in effect, Trump's bounded set mentality? Well, that's an interesting piece, isn't it? Because you recognize right away with a centered set, we gather around a point that we all care about. The question is never asked, what do you believe? Yeah. The question is asked, the what only question is asked, do you care about this issue? Yeah. Do you care about this? You know? And those people who care about that, then they, they move together toward that. And, uh, and you know, that's the kind of thing that we as Christians will find unity is purposeful when we gather around those things we care about. So to finish out and to loop back and pick up our earlier, your earlier discussion of how the church relates to culture and interacts and engages culture, I'm hearing you suggest that uh, adopting a, a centered set mentality will allow us to engage the culture in this new era, this post-Christendom world that we find ourselves in, which sometimes resembles the early church's uh, world of hostility sometimes, or at least certainly ambiguity uh, on whether or not we're legitimate or what we're pushing or, or whatever else. So I'm, I'm hearing you say that it's important to have a more limber centered set mentality as we relate to our culture. Well, the first centered set that we as Christians need to enter into is that we care most about what God cares about. Sometimes you hear it expressed as, you know, do you, do we allow our hearts to be broken by those things that break the heart of God? I mean, that's a yeah. one way of expressing that, that that's expressing a point of caring. But first and foremost for us, it's we want to live lives that glorify God and advance his kingdom. And uh, so the first centered set as Christians that we enter into is saying we, we identify with others who also would uh, claim the name of Jesus as Lord and, and then would begin to live into that reality. From there, there are different passions that God is going to lay on the doorstep uh, or in the, inside the hearts of his followers. And so what we do in cities oftentimes, Reggie, to promote Christian unity is to use an appreciative inquiry process where we ask good questions and we listen. We see an example of that, uh, for instance, in Luke chapter 7, where uh, 
John the Baptist, uh, he has disciples. His disciples come to Jesus and says, are, are you the one or should we be looking for somebody different? And then Jesus goes out and without really giving them a verbal answer, he's, it says at that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. What they did was they asked a good question. Are you the one? And what Jesus gave them for an answer was that he directly met the needs of many people around him and said, these are the deeds of the kingdom. And uh, so go tell him, this is what's going on, because he'll know right away that I am the one who was sent. Because those were uh, widely held beliefs that of evidences when the kingdom of God would come, specifically when the messianic kingdom would show up on earth. The, the, the lame would walk, the blind would would see lepers who would be made whole. That was all kingdom code language, wasn't it? Uh, to signal to John, the kingdom has come, and I am the, uh, the Messiah. So to answer the question, it's not nearly as, um, as ambiguous an answer as I was raised to believe. You know, why don't you just answer the question? The truth is, the more we understand about the kingdom, uh, the more we understand Jesus answered that question directly uh, to John. Well, hey, here's the proof. Okay, um, so, so that's a long time ago. I mean, that's 2,000 years ago. What the New Testament does is it makes a shift. In the early church, they say Jesus was a historical person who lived, who healed as many people as he, you know, as he encountered with diseases. And he was, he was doing the works of the kingdom. After Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven, the church then was given the responsibility of being the body of Christ on earth and doing the work that Jesus did. And so the, an ongoing incarnational presence yeah, in ministry. An ongoing ingar, incarnational presence. So consequently, this is why centered set thinking is so important in our mission field today, Reggie. The church needs to be going out and pressing into those areas that God has laid on our hearts that we are to care about, and we become the body of Christ, the incarnational presence of Christ in our community as we help to heal the brokenness in our cities and communities. And it's important that we show up and be physically present in this information era that we be physically present and incarnate the love of Christ as we care about those things we say we care about in those centered set relationships. This is at the heart of our thinking in good cities is how purposeful unity begins to take place and people are invited in as they experience compassion with capacity being lived out in their communities. And which is the good uh, in, the, in the good city's name uh, and the good of the kingdom uh, breaking out and people, our, our capacity to be co-conspirators with God in his kingdom work here. Well, thanks, Glenn, for helping us understand um, 
how really uh, working and looking for people of goodwill and joining with them in good deeds and, and good expression, really uh, connecting uh, them with the good news is, is all a part of how the church is supposed to be related today. Any final comments on that as we sign off? Well, I just said that incarnational presence is important. The only place that the body of Christ can really experience physical unity is in a city because it's a, it's a place that's geographically close enough for us to gather together. And so, yes, it's good cities. So we think carefully about the good that God is calling us to do and the location of our missional work that's going to be most effective is not just outside the doorstep of the church, but in the cities and communities where we live, work, and play. Thanks, Glenn, for giving us the behind the scenes and behind the mind of the president of uh, Good Cities and why you're doing what you're doing. It's fascinating and very informative. And uh, hopefully some uh, uh, good centered set invitation to, to join uh, the work of of good cities and just join with folks in your own local community, wherever you find yourself listening to this podcast. Hopefully this will be a releasing podcast for you to release. You to look for the good, work for the good, expect the good, uh, live the good and, uh, and make a difference right where you live. Thanks for listening today. Thanks Glenn for being with us. Thanks Richie. Thanks for listening to the good cities podcast. We hope you'll subscribe and listen in on future episodes. To get more information about Good Cities, join our email list, or to find out how to get involved in making your city a good city, visit goodcities.net.